0: Father, we do echo those prayers and knowing that you in your sovereign hand will do far more than what we even ask or imagine because you know the situation and you're always at work and we praise you for that. We praise you that we've gathered together today that we want to focus on your word and worship you as a result of knowing you better and what you have done on our behalf. We praise you for that. And we desire that nothing hinder us from not only understanding, but uh, being able to apply what you have given to us. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to get into Romans chapter 5. There are some things in there that you might think are very familiar, and I might surprise you by sharing some things Concerning the passage that maybe you haven't seen before, maybe a little different from what you have just read on the surface, but we will be dealing with two major areas of teaching in Scripture. We'll complete what we looked at last week, and the way I introduced the love of God, I mentioned that it's probably overemphasized in the church today, and... By overemphasizing, we sometimes can distort a doctrine, and I think that sometimes is the case. But because we've already developed the background before we get to this passage concerning God's love for humanity and believers in particular, we have a biblical context to better understand that love of God. Secondly, I want to touch on the end of the passage in Romans 5, 1 through 11. In that same context, it speaks of the doctrine of reconciliation. This is one of the key passages in all of Scripture dealing with that concept and that doctrine. And maybe we might even finish, who knows? Miracles. Miracles can happen, exactly. So, in the book of Romans, we're gonna talk about this ongoing salvation in the midst of this context. I think that's also an issue relating to what Paul is talking about. And I title it that way just mainly to call attention to it, verses nine through eleven. Changed what I had on the outline sheet. If you got in fact there's two outline sheets from one from last week and then we'll get into a new one this week. So and we've been talking about believers that lived in Rome in the first century. A lot of them were martyred on this very site. Here's a different shot, Linda, at the same stadium, Colosseum. And the main idea, main theme of the whole book is God providing righteousness to those that are undeserving. And he's talking about his own righteousness. In other words, a perfect standing before God which is only available through what God has accomplished for us, but he has provided it, and the bulk of the book all the way to the end of chapter 8. That's the main idea, I believe. We saw that we are undeserving, and in fact, we stand condemned, and we need to understand the love of God in the context of condemnation. In other words, we're not deserving of it. In fact, we are under wrath, that's what uh, Paul tells us, You have to understand wrath before you can truly understand love. And last week I stressed the idea that a lot of churches overemphasize love to the neglect of God's wrath, God's holiness, God's judgment. And by doing that, you really don't have a biblical picture of love. So it's in the context of we deserving wrath and all this entailed there and judgment while we were enemies, the text tells us, we were justified. In other words, we experienced that love that Paul describes in the middle of the passage there. So we're talking about justification, chapter 5, 1 through 11, the profit that is gained from justification. So he's completed at the end of chapter 4 his doctrinal portion, if you will, dealing with justification by faith. And now he's taking it one step and he's transitioning into the area of the Christian life that he begins in chapter 6. But chapter 5 is a transition to get there. So we're dealing with issues that have more direct application to the believer and therefore probably more practical application to us today. So the profit from justification, present benefits, verses 1 through 2, primarily peace with God and access to an abundance of more grace. Justification is by grace, but this just introduces us, as New American Standard translates the word, to a whole package, you might say, of blessings from God that are all by grace. And he even looks forward to glorification, We exult in that future glory. We have ongoing tribulation. Once we become a believer, that doesn't mean that we live a life free of suffering. So we spent some time looking at the place of suffering, the reasons we suffer. And the ones that are in view here is God uses suffering to cause us to grow. So it's an ongoing tribulation. Experience of the Christian, or we could, we should expect it. We may not experience it every day, but we should expect it. But view it from God's perspective. How is God using it in my life to cause me spiritual growth? We saw a divine past accomplishment, the death of Christ, focused on that passage. And in the midst of that, we also have the love of God poured out. In other words, As a result of suffering, we're going to experience, if we respond rightly, we're going to experience that outpouring of God's love. And it's on the basis of death, Christ's death, that he accomplished the satisfaction of God's righteous nature in satisfying what God requires in terms of receiving righteousness. And in that context, we receive his love. And just to kind of quickly review and pick up where we left off, we looked at verse 7, but verse 7 begins, and I put the prepositions in there for the transitional words. For, in the English, is not immediately evident that Paul changes back and forth from one for in the Greek text, which is more of a transition, or Inferential word. In other words, it infers from something that he said before. That's gar. For one will hardly die for. In English, it's the same word, but in Greek, it changes. It's different. And in fact, it's very important in theological context. The word in Greek, huper, starts with like a H sound, rough breathing pair that has the idea of something in the place of something else in many contexts. So it has the for, in other words, something for someone else. One will hardly die for or in the place of or as a substitute for a righteous man. So it's a very important preposition that has a lot of theological significance. And it has the idea of substitution, and in this context, substitutionary death. So one will hardly die in the place of, or the benefit of, or as a substitute for, a righteous man. Now he's using a human illustration, and I brought this out last time. Though, that's the English translation, New American Standard, but we have Garic again. In other words, inferential, you can even translate it, for perhaps. In other words, I just made this one statement, now I'm going to follow up with this other statement. For perhaps, and then another for, another who pair for the good man. In other words, as a substitute for a good man, someone would even or dare even to die. So it doesn't come across in the English, but it is... Very clear in the Greek text. So there's somewhat of a, I think, a distinction. A lot of scholars say he's just changing stylistically because it almost seems out of place. You almost think, well, you have to have a good man first. And if it's intensifying or taking the next step, then you would expect a righteous man next. But he speaks of a righteous man and then uh, intensifying it for perhaps a good man someone would even dare die or dare even die. You see the kind of the progression here? So one will hardly die for even a righteous man, and I think there's probably a distinction here, and I think you have to think more Jewishly, and if you remember in the first century, Jesus encountered a lot of righteous people, quote-unquote, and some of them, in fact, the one uh, that says, well, I've kept all of the law, I'm a righteous person. And what does Jesus say to him? When he's asking, you know, what do I lack? Sell
1: everything you have, give it to the poor and then, take it.
0: Okay. Now he's talking probably the next stage. In other words, he probably meets in general the law and he makes sacrifices for his sin so he would be considered in Judaism a righteous person but he has no concern necessarily for people in need. He meets the standards but Paul says, perhaps for a good man, and in a Jewish context, it would be someone that was not only righteous, but somebody in that context we just referred to sold everything that he had because he was benevolent and uh, had relationships with people and went beyond just simply a right standing before the law. Does that make sense? So that's probably the distinction that's being made. Of
1: those self-righteous.
0: Well, there was a lot of self righteousness in the first century as well, but there were some godly people that met the law. And perhaps that one that I gave you the example of the, what it was, was he a lawyer that came to Christ and said, I've done everything in the law. What do I lack? Jesus says, You lack the relationship, you lack the self sacrifice, the, the giving of, of everything. So for a good man, someone dare even to die. And this is a contrast. In other words, even the best amongst humanity, there might be some circumstances, though it's perhaps even not likely, that someone might sacrifice themselves. And we talk about war heroes. You know, they die for us, for the country. They give up everything. They give up their lives. So this is kind of a realistic illustration of, Human love, just relating to what we said last time in the first part, it's related to hope because it's in that context. It follows, hope does not disappoint. Then it goes into the passage dealing with God pouring out his love. It's experienced primarily in tribulation, particularly if you're responding rightly. It's lavishly poured out. That's the idea of the imagery of it being poured out. The word there, poured out, is used in a context of pouring out like a pitcher of wine or a container of wine, specific examples in the text, or pouring out of a liquid, and it has this idea of this lavishness of something poured out, and we have the experience of God's love. So he lavishly pours it out upon us. It's in abundance, and it's in that context of tribulation, It's given by grace, whole context here, speaks of grace, undeserved. And then now this passage is going to emphasize it's infinitely greater than human love. God's love is infinitely greater. And that is stressed in verse 8, but God demonstrates. In other words, it's evident, it's on display. We've seen a similar word prior in a prior context in chapter 3, where God makes evident, makes known, and in this case, God demonstrates his own love, infinite love, supernatural love, and I've been emphasizing this is the agape word that is used of God's love. It's love that's poured out to those that are undeserving. That's why it's grace. So God demonstrates his own love towards us. And how do you see God's love? There might be a human that might die for someone else. But God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, totally undeserving, at war with him, separated from him. And he's going to go further in later on and talk about reconciliation with him. But it's on the basis of that while we were yet sinners... Christ died, and then we have pair again. Christ died in the place of us. Christ died as our substitute. We deserve that death. He's the substitute that took on all of the judgment that we deserve. pair Make sense? So Christ died for us. And in this context, just a reminder, remember in verse 6, for a while we were still helpless. There was nothing we could do to change our circumstance, nothing we could do to satisfy the justice of God. We deserved condemnation, and we were helpless. And then in verse 8, we just looked at here, in that while we were yet sinners, totally alienated, totally separate, totally antagonistic, Christ died for us. And if you skip to verse 10, well, actually... Uh, the the end of verse six, Christ died for the ungodly; those that do not have God, do not have a relationship, are distant from Him. And then verse ten, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. So two themes: our helplessness or ungodliness, our sinner state, our status as enemies, in contrast. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So two kind of opposites here. Christ's death in contrast to our losses. Betty. Well, verse 7
1: has always kind of stymied me. And I understand Paul's anger at the righteous men and Christ's anger at the righteous men. But I don't know why that's really in there, because of all of this, <clears throat> we're talking about that he died for us when we were helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies, as were the righteous men, and he died for them equally. Yes. So why,
0: well, what, what
1: is the point of this? For one, well, you take like, died.
0: Yeah, you take it in its context, mm-hmm. he's already condemned all people, and our righteousness is like filthy rags. Mm-hmm. In other words, even the best amongst us is totally lost. In fact, you could say totally depraved. Every aspect of his being is touched by sin. So he's already developed that concept. So when he's using, this is more of an illustration on the human level. In other words, if you look at the best of humanity, even though their righteousness is filthy rags and does not gain any status before God, He's contrasting the the greatest of man's love. Even this kind of a person will hardly die, and a good person might die that has also righteous standing before the law. In other words, just legally, not before God, but in terms of what God has set up in the law. There might be one that might die, but Christ demonstrates his love, you might, you're dying for a good person, Christ dying for an evil person,
1: mm-hmm.
0: for the sinful person, the helpless, the ungodly, the sinner, the enemies. Does that make more sense?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. In other words, it's a contrast. He uses a human illustration to contrast, I think, the infinite love of God in that he dies for those that are antagonistic to him. We might die for somebody that does goodness, You know, maybe we're the recipients of their goodness and we, son might die for a parent or a parent might die for a child, but God's love is infinitely greater. And I think that's the point. And again, the emphasis, Christ died in our place while we were yet sinners. So it is sacrificial as well. It's number six on our list in the text here. So the love of God, it's a agape love. In other words, it's actions, it's not emotions. It's supernatural in that this is God's love. Now, he's able to give us the capability of loving others in the same way, but his love is without <laughs> regard to the object. It's related to man in terms of the hope that we have. We can experience that love. In the midst of hope, that's the context here. In the midst of tribulation, it's lavishly poured out in that context. And I've used the illustration of Stephen when he was martyred. That love was poured out in that God gave him a supernatural vision that I think love is not stated in the context. But it's that pouring out of God expressing himself to Stephen (coughs) He needed that in order to endure that persecution. And in that context, he's able to say, Father, forgive them. He had a divine perspective on his martyrdom and death. And I think to the extent that we suffer, to that greater extent, if we call upon him, we experience that love. That's the context here. And it's undeserved. It's by grace. We're enemies, et cetera infinitely greater than human love, and then at the end of the passage there, sacrificial. So that moves us into the next part, where we saw the divine accomplishment, Christ's death, stressing the death aspect there, 6 through 8, and in that context, love and death. In other words, death is the visible expression, the visible way that mankind can see that love, that sacrificial love. Now we have ongoing salvation, 9 through 11. And let's see how far we can get into the passage. So 9, and notice he's building here. He's been building throughout this passage. And now in verse 9, much more than. So he's already talking about this outpouring of love. But now there's even much more as a result of this justification. Not only do we have peace. Not only do we have access to this grace. Not only do we have this future hope that we can exult in. And not only do we have this outpouring of love in the midst of suffering that is inevitable and part of part of life. But now, in verse nine, even above and beyond all of that, that God is going to provide much more than having now been justified by his blood. This is how he started the passage. So he's kind of tying it back to what he said in verse 1. Those having been justified. In other words, this applies to those that have experienced justification. So he's reminding the Roman readers. This is another profit or benefit or blessing, you might say. As a result of justification. Having now been justified by his blood. In other words, put in a right standing before God. And Remember the two elements of justification that we receive? First, the negative is removed. The negative is removed. Forgiveness of sin. And then there's a... Well, that satisfies God's righteous nature, but... That's toward God. Toward us we receive forgiveness of sins and the positive is we are declared righteous. We are declared to have the same righteousness as Jesus Christ so we stand as if we had never sinned even though we remain sinners. He's going to develop that as we go further on. In fact the whole tribulation idea is God is refining and trimming that that sinfulness that we have, making us more and more righteous. But justification declares us righteous. So we're given a new standing. So we're going to have key ideas, and I put these on your outline sheet. First key idea here, justification is by grace. We've seen that. That's chapter 3, 21 through the end of chapter 4. Also, by faith. That phrase occurs in that same context. And now, did you notice what it said here? By blood, by blood. What does he mean by that? Did you notice in verse nine? It's by his blood. What does blood communicate, or what? I think it's life. metaphorical. Yeah, life. Yeah, in other words, the the loss of life, or the shedding of life, or it the losing the of life. Testament.
1: Yeah. Do not eat. Meat With blood still in it, because blood is the life. Represents the life. So you drain all the blood out of this carcass, right. or you start cutting it up and cooking
0: it. Right. That's the Old Testament imagery. The shedding of blood represented death. So it's not that Christ's blood has this magical or this spiritual power, in other words, the molecules, but I think it's a... Metaphor that every Jew would be acquainted with because sacrifices were bloody and you drained the blood and then you burnt the sacrifice. The shedding of blood, the animal loses its life in place of that that is being the one that is being using the sacrifice. The shedding of Christ's blood here is a picture of his death on the cross. Betty, go ahead.
1: Well, to me... Anytime the, the shedding of blood, to me, that's just, I always thought we were just working out exactly what was prescribed as what needed to be done for the forgiveness of sin. Yes. The actual letting of the blood right on the altar in an absolute prescribed way. I hadn't taken it, I mean, it seems kind of general to talk about the life of this. I mean, it's just a, I guess I was being a little more strict about it. Uh,
0: yeah, and I think you're you're absolutely right. But in, in this context, is His blood, in other words, Christ's blood yes. that was shed on the cross. What I'm saying is this picture that we have in Romans and elsewhere, by the way, when it refers to the shedding of His blood, it's the picture of the whole sacrificial system. Like you're saying, that Christ shed His blood <coughs> like a sacrificial animal. And in this context, with substitution, we deserve that. Christ shed his blood. We deserve to shed our blood, but if we shed our blood, then we spend eternity apart from God. We can't pay for it because our sacrifice is unclean, you might say. Doesn't
1: blood also represent purification and cleaning?
0: It was utilized for that purpose. It required the shedding of an animal. Yeah. The the loss of life. And like Russ is saying, the life is in the blood. You have all of that Old Testament imagery here. Okay? So it's by his death. We have a metaphor that stands for his death, basically. And that runs through the whole passage. And that's supported by the rest of the passage because it keeps referring over and over to his death. And then once it mentions his blood. Okay? So... Having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved. What tense is it? Future ongoing. Oh, that's ongoing. Future ongoing, ongoing. yes. In other words, in the context of being justified after that, everything that follows after that, being saved. Now, if you're a good Baptist, like some of you may from that background, every time you see the word saved, what do you think of? Justification. You think of justification, you think of saved from the, from hell, yes. saved from uh, ultimate suffering of penalty, but as we've said several times, I'm going to review, I'm going to just <coughs> review to you, when the Bible uses the word sozo, which is the verb form to save, or soteria, the noun form, and all of its related words, it doesn't always In fact, I counted the number of times that it occurs and it it refers certainly to that past tense sense once and for all at the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ in the sense of justification. But an equal number of times it occurs in terms of ongoing present tense salvation. So I think what he's talking about here, and I'm going to talk about wrath as well, I think he's talking about ongoing salvation. So let's take a look at the word, and let me kind of defend that idea. So the the verb is sozo, and that's what we have here. It's in the future, in this context, in terms of, I think it has this idea of after justification in that context. And it can be used, and let's look these up. Uh, Somebody look up Acts 27. I just want to illustrate. I mentioned several times every theological word that you can find in the Bible comes right out of a normal, everyday usage. And here's a good example, the word salvation, or the, the idea of to be saved from something. Who's got Acts? Connie? And somebody get Ephesians. This is you probably have this one memorized. And these are just the categories. If you study the word that you're gonna find in a context, if you study the context, it can refer to physical harm. That's Acts 27, 20, and 31. Who wants to do the Ephesians one Terry? That's from eternal hell. That's the one that uh, comes to mind every time you see it, if you're from a Baptist background or a future completion of a salvation. 1 Peter one five. somebody got that one? Dwayne and Mary Lee, why don't you do the Philippians 2.12.1. And let's get somebody else to look at 1 Corinthians one who Who's got it? Ellen. And since you're sitting next to your husband there, have him look up James one twenty one. Let you volunteer for both of you. Okay, so the word, I believe, is used in three different ways. One of them non-theological, in an everyday, material, physical sense. In other words, this has the basic idea, and by the way, it's used in this way, mostly in the Old Testament, the corresponding Hebrew words. Just salvation from any physical harm. The Old Testament, <laughs> salvation from an enemy. In other words, in battle or in war. Here's an example of Paul in Acts 27, and he uses the word salvation. And Connie, you have that one? Acts 27, 20, and then skip to 31.
1: Now, when neither sun nor stars appear many days, and no small tempest be on us, all hope that we will be saved is finally given
0: up. Okay, what is the context? Shipwreck. A shipwreck, a storm. They're about to die at sea, and they lost all hope of salvation. Oh, are they going to lose their eternal standing before God? No, it's in the context of physical harm. Similarly in verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and the
1: soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot
0: be saved. Is he talking about you better trust Jesus Christ? No, he's talking about this physical harm. And by the way, the noun is also used in verse 34. We won't look at it, but it also is in that same context. So you have both the verb and the noun that is commonly translated salvation. And this is just one example in a physical storm. There's other examples in the New Testament where it's used in this ordinary, everyday sense. Now, because it's so important theologically, you would expect that it occurs more often theologically, and that's the case. But it doesn't always refer to that salvation from hell, if you will. That's why I've kind of stressed that idea here. Ephesians two five, and also verse eight gives us that idea where he's talking about being lost. Verse three verses, and he's dealing with eternal destiny here. Who's got your spy
1: Terry? You made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions.
0: Is by grace you have been saved by grace you have been and it uses I think the verb form there either the verb or the noun you have been saved past tense speaking to the Ephesians who have experienced this salvation from <coughs> eternal punishment in hell and then also verse 8 you Lord, by like grace it. you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves it is a gift of God okay salvation in terms of eternal destiny. And then it also there's a few passages, in fact quite a few, that refer to a future salvation, first Peter one five. So every time you see the word, don't automatically think it's talking about eternal destiny. It could be used in these two other ways or three other ways. First Peter one five, who's got it, Duane, read it loud
1: who were kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be
0: revealed at the last time. He's talking about a future salvation. Those are future sense. And there's other passages as well. And I believe in this context, and by the way, I mentioned, I'll remind you again, it is used in this present tense sense, or ongoing salvation, in as many times, I think there's an equal number of times it's used in this sense as it's used in the salvation from eternal hell sense. And this is one of the examples in, uh, in the passage we're looking at, at in Romans, but also Philippians 2.12. Who's got it? I
1: do. Okay. Uh, but that future completion, that too is salvation from eternal hell. So it kind of falls under that category, right?
0: Well, yeah, but it's it, it's not at that moment that I trusted in Jesus Christ. And that's what the bat or I shouldn't pick on the Baptist because I think a lot of or guys, I know. I know it. How many of you are Baptist background? A few no. of you. Yeah. I'm just picking on you guys. <laughs>
1: <We're not laughs>
0: but bad. we generally refer what?
1: We're not bad.
0: No, no, no. We we love live. you. We love you Thank almost God. as much as the others. <laughs> That sense is generally looking at, oh, the moment I trusted in Jesus Christ, I was saved. But this, 1 Peter 1 5, is not looking at that. It's looking at, there's a future sense. Now I'm going to expand it in the next slide.
1: Judgment, and, and so not only. No, right now, it's, no, no,
0: no. It's a salvation from our sinful bodies right now. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's a release from our sinful bodies. It's glorification. Okay. I'll get to that. Yep, All right. and Philippians 2.12. All
1: right. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and
0: Okay, there's the noun usage. Work out your salvation. Isn't salvation by grace, through faith? This means we have to have a certain number of rally points to get in heaven. <laughs> yeah. Apart from the law, apart from obedience, apart from works, what does it mean work it out? It's talking in this present tense. It's going to take some discipline. It's going to take some action. It's living it out. It's living it out. Exactly. Very different from the moment I trusted. It's by grace, by faith, apart from the law, apart from works, apart from anything in me. And this passage, now if you read verse 13, it talks about God even doing that part as well. We don't need to read that verse. But I want you to see that this is a present tense sense. Similarly, First 1 Corinthians 1.18. Ellen. The
1: message of the cross is foolishness, absurd and illogical. To those who are perishing and spiritually dead, they rejected.
0: it. Okay, it's foolishness to the unbeliever. But to us, go ahead
1: are being saved by God's grace, it is the manifestation of the God.
0: Who are being saved, present tense sense.
1: <clears throat>
0: See that? In James 1.21, and notice in that context, verse 1, he's speaking to believers. I think verse 19, I'm not sure, he talks about brethren, verse 1, brethren, verse 19, Brethren. In fact, throughout the book, he's talking to a believing audience. And what does he say to that believing audience? Is he all, all of a sudden shifting to a new audience? Read uh, one James one twenty one.
1: Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains
0: of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. And I think he's talking about spiritual growth. In other words, you have to put away those things that keep you from growing, and now concentrate on the word of God and learning out of it because it's able to save your soul? Does that mean they are <coughs> lost and not believers? I think he's talking about a believing audience here. He's talking about this ongoing salvation. That's what Romans chapters 6 through 8 is going to talk about. This ongoing working out of righteousness in our experience. Ongoing salvation. And by the way, Paul does not use sozo or soteria in Romans three twenty-one through 4, what is it, 25 is it? How many verses are there? The end of chapter 4. He does not use the word. In fact, here in chapter 5 is the first time Paul uses the word sozo after the first, well, actually the second time after the first one it occurs in verse 16. He's not using that word. He's not talking about that idea in terms of that word. The word that he uses is justification. Justification and salvation are the same. Justification is that initial part of salvation at the moment that we trust in Jesus Christ. Okay? See, there were a couple of hands.
1: Linda? I um, It says, call, He who calls on the name of the Lord, or whatever, shall be saved. I remember Glenn saying, you know, that's the ongoing thing. It's not like...
0: In that it's like,
1: like you're here, and then you call the name. Throughout your life, you get saved from... Yeah, you're not it's saved good.
0: over and over and over. No, yeah.
1: but you're saved from... A a sinful experience.
0: We're going to look at what we're saved from in this context as well. Okay? We're just talking about the word salvation. This is basically a word study that I've given you. These are the categories of how the word is used. And in the context we're talking about, I think it's this one, this present tense sense. All right? Now let me kind of theologically put the last three together here. So in the past tense sense... Paul, in Galatians and in Romans and in other places, when he's talking about salvation in that past tense sense, he uses the word justification. So theologically it's the idea of justification. That's a salvation from the penalty of sin, from eternal destiny. Salvation from hell, you might say. Okay? Okay. That's that past tense. That's the Baptist sense. There's also that future sense of salvation. Paul uses this word. He uses glorification. He uses it in Romans 8, where we are saved from the very presence of sin. We're removed out of these bodies of sin, and we're free from sin. We're totally saved. That won't happen in this life. This happens when we either die, go to be with the Lord, or at the rapture. And if there's a past tense justification and there's a future glorification, what might you expect? Present, present tense. And what's the theological word that Paul uses there? Sanctification. Sanctification. Way in the back. So that present tense sense is this ongoing growth. This ongoing sanctification. And that's what, in this context, tribulation moves along. That suffering produces Christian character. So we might say if the past it's <coughs> a salvation from the penalty of sin, and the future from the very even presence of sin, can you come up with another P word? The
1: practice to of sin.
0: The practice (laughs) of sin. That would be good. That would fit. But how about from the power of sin? Absolutely. A salvation from the power. This is a day by day, moment by moment, as we apply the scriptures and we attempt to walk in the power of the spirit, we have power over sin. So it's an ongoing present tense. That's the context. Remember, this is a transition into chapters 6, 7, and 8 where he's going to expand this whole idea of sanctification. In fact, that's the title that we'll give that whole section. So we've talked about condemnation. We're undeserving. We're lost. We're without righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we also talked about justification. In other words, we have been given a right standing, that's salvation initially. There's a future where we'll be removed totally, that's glorification, totally from sin. But today, after we have trusted in Christ, we have an ongoing salvation from sin. We call that sanctification from the power of sin.
1: So then, in light of that, and when we are reading um, Philippians 2.12, he could say, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your sanctification. Yes. And that would, that would fit it. That would fit, exactly. Yep. Work right. out your own sanctification, yes. which, yes, which yeah. puts kind of a different, somehow puts a different spin on well, it. Well, puts an
0: accurate spin on it.
1: It's an accurate spin. Yeah, because yeah. we are to be participating with Him. In the same process. Yes. We it
0: work it out. Yeah, yep. We can't do it on our own,
1: but he will force it on us. So exactly. Partnership. Yes. And that's why that passage, I think... In us,
0: fact, since work you're work in there, read what Bill is saying, verse 13.
1: For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure.
0: Both the will. In other words, he's working. He's enabling. But our will is involved.
1: Our will. So it's his work and our will to join him in it. Yes. And actively.
0: And that's Romans.
1: Against what he's trying to do in our life by our own choice.
0: Exactly. And we can't do it
1: without him.
0: And that's Romans 6 through 8. Yeah.
1: That's where Calvinism and Arminianism come together.
0: Um, I'm not sure. God's
1: what. working and then we're.
0: Yes. Yeah. Okay. So another key idea, justification by grace, by faith, by death. Or blood. And secondly, salvation in the present tense sense. This is ongoing during the Christian life. Not salvation from hell. It's only for those that have already received that salvation from hell. Now it's after. Having been justified. Now what's this wrath thing? Shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Doesn't that mean that it's talking about this ultimate from hell thing? Well, again, if you're a good Baptist, every time you see wrath and every time you think, it's talking about eternal hell or final judgment. But I think in the book of Romans, here's one of those things that I told you ahead of time that I might say something surprising. I think throughout the book of Romans... I don't think there, there might be just one passage where Paul uses the word wrath and he's talking about eternal final judgment. In fact, there's a, actually a little clue here. It's almost mm, unusual, you might say, in the Greek text. He puts the article saved from the wrath. And what has he been talking about from verse 18? Remember I made a big point when he was talking about verse in verse 18, 118, the wrath of God, present tense, is revealed. And as we, we worked our way through Romans 1, we see how that wrath is seen and demonstrated. When we got to verse 24, God gave them up. That's the wrath of God. Because man rejected his revelation and as a result went, you know, is His whole being is changed. He becomes idolatrous, verse 23. And in verse 24, therefore, God gave them up. You could even translate it. Verse 26, again, he reiterates the same word. God gave them up. That's the wrath of God just letting you suffer the consequences of your own decisions. That's wrath. Rather than intervening and drawing you to himself, or intervening, and in that context, uh, he's dealing with the unbeliever, but he can intervene in the believer as well, and he will suffer, allow us to suffer our consequences as unbelievers and also as believers. And if we walk with him, we can be delivered from a lot of suffering, and a lot of God just letting us go our way. And I think wrath in this context, he's talking about, the same context. He hasn't changed it, I don't think, when he introduced it. So I think he says the wrath of God that I told you about in chapter 1, verse 18, that present tense sense of wrath. So I call it temporal wrath.
1: So that would then tie to this, to David's life where David had a census, and God was angry with him, and God gave him three choices. You know, which choice do you want? Because I am angry with you. So he didn't lose salvation, but he experienced severe discipline.
0: Discipline. And that's another word.
1: So we see a a huge difference between wrath, which to me is just fury, and discipline, which is severe but it has a different end goal than wrath. Teaching, right? yeah. Yeah, discipline mm-hmm. has a teaching and a restorative underlying purpose, even though right. we don't feel it very restorative. Right. But there's an underlying thing.
0: Yeah. Okay, so we are shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now here's your assignment for next week. See if you can find a usage in the book of Romans of the word wrath in a sense where he refers to the final judgment. I don't think this one does. I don't uh, verse 18 clearly does not. And there's others that uh, probably do not as well. Well, we've kind of exceeded our time here, so this is probably a good place to stop we We got so much into it. So lost track of time, yeah. yeah. Closing thought, we have resurrection power. This is the main idea of Romans 6 through 8. We have resurrection power to live the Christian life. Who wants to close for us? Terry's always a good one. Thank you,
1: Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving yourself to us. Lord, we just pray that we take your word and apply it to our lives and share the hope that we have within us with others. We really hope, Lord, that we glorify you in oh, Jesus' Amen.